How is everybody? I am going to plug in my computer, but I can talk to you while I'm doing it. And uh, I'm going to be sharing some stuff with you. It's not a slide presentation. I'm going to show you how I study my Bible. Um, so uh, bear with me here a moment. I'll tell you an amazing fact while we're doing this. There was once a time when they invented the, a machine that would print Bibles. You know, the first printing press uh, was Johann Gutenberg. And the first book they printed on a printing press was a Bible. And up until that point, all Bibles were written by people, man's hands, scribes. And it took a very long time. When the first Bible came off a printing press, they said, how can anyone have God speak to them through a Bible printed by a machine? Really, there was a lot of conventional wisdom that as long as a man is writing out these things, there's a soul in it. But if it's printed by a machine, how can God use it? And... Uh, there are people who think, how can God, how can you study your Bible through a computer? Well, the Word of God is the Word of God. Uh, you know, whether those words are pointed, pointed uh, or formed by little pixelated dots on a page, or whether they're pixels on a computer screen, uh, the Word of God spoken, the Word of God written, the Word of God digitally, it's still the Word of God. And so... I hope you'll not be disillusioned when I tell you that I almost never study my Bible, Bible. I preach from my Bible, Bible. 99% of my real study is done in the morning or at night on a computer. And I'll tell you how much this has helped me. Of course, when I first became a Christian, I read a Bible in a cave and it's all I had. And... Uh, Gradually, I was able to get a collection of books, but, you know, when you live in a cave, you don't have a great library, and so I had the Bible, I had Stephen Haskell's book on Daniel, and uh, Uriah Smith's book on Daniel and the Revelation, a uh, number of spirit of prophecy books. Eventually, when I moved to Covalo, I got a concordance or two, and when I wanted to study a subject, I don't know if any of you remember Young's Analytical Concordance, but it's a big, heavy book. And I'd have to look through reams and reams of microscopic print to find a word. And then you'd flip through the Bible and you'd find that verse. Uh, now with Bible software, what used to take me, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour to discover, I find in seconds. And so I just wanted to share with you that I have been able to really make people think that I'm pretty smart because of a computer. When I do the Bible Answer Live program Sunday night, Pastor Ross and Pastor Doug both have laptops open. And when people ask us questions, we seem to have the answers very quickly because we're going through the Bible software. We can type in one or two words and find they think we're brilliant. We say, well, that word appears 1,100 times in the Bible. And it's this many times in the New Testament, this many times in the Old Testament. And here it is in Greek. And uh, it's really been a real blessing for me. Now, just show me your hands. 
How many of you have either a desktop or laptop computer? Let me see your hands. All right, all those people there, you can greatly accelerate your Bible study by using some of these. Oh, look, I got wireless here. I can go online. By uh, doing, uh, using a laptop. Let me see, I can barely see my mouse. Um, this is the program I'm showing you right here, and I'm not selling anything. This program's 10 years old. Uh, and I learned quite a bit from John Lomacane. He told me about this. Every morning when Pastor Doug wakes up, I press that little icon, which is my daily Bible reading program. I read my Bible every day, aside from what I normally read in Bible study and sermon preparation. I'm always somewhere, hi, are you, Roger? I'm always somewhere reading along in the scriptures. Uh, this morning I read uh, Isaiah chapter 45. Now it says here, that I'm 10 readings behind. You see that? That's because I'm doing it on my desktop. When I'm on the road, then I use my laptop. I am not behind. I want everyone to know that. I read that this morning. <laughs> but I use this, and then I just say, okay. Um, view a search. And it, it takes you um, immediately to those verses. And I read through. I, and by the way, I don't read you know, 10 chapters a day. I used to do that so I could read through the Bible every year. And I found out my mind started wandering or I wanted to study more. And so I was racing to get my quota done every day. And I found it was more productive for me. I read through the Bible every three years. That's just what I do. Two years for the Old Testament, one year for the New Testament, and then I start again. I've been doing that for many years now. And you know, I read through the Bible lots of times if you add in all the sermon preparation and articles and things that we're doing. But I'm always reading through the Bible because, you know, if you just focus on one thing, it's real easy to get where you've got your favorite sections of the Bible and you'll find 10 years go by and you haven't read uh, any of the Old Testament or any parts of the Bible. So, you know, I have great respect for my friend Dwight Nelson. He reads through the whole Bible every January of every year. Uh, HMS Richard Sr. used to read through the Bible several times a year. And so you can do it, you just have to be committed. Uh, something else I should say before I go on and show you some of the little tips in uh, Bible study. I, I'm sharing these things with you because there's never been a time in history when we have been more bombarded with information. Uh, have any of you ever gone through like a salad bar before? And uh, when you finally, you get your salad at Fresh Choice, you put your salad and all the greens in, and then you get down to the dressing, and you go to put dressing on, and you find out, you know, I put way too much dressing on. And the only thing you can do is go back and add more salad <laughs> so that it doesn't look like your salad is swimming in dressing, right? It evens it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe you, you know, you put some soy milk in your cereal, and you say, oh man, it's just swimming now in milk, I gotta put more cereal in to even it out. In our culture today, because your mind is being so bombarded with other information, just we're surrounded by everything from billboards to magazines to radio to television, that you cannot survive as a Christian on the same amount of Bible study that they had 100 years ago. Do you realize 100 years ago, if you wanted to listen to a song, you had to know somebody who could sing or learn how to play an instrument or go down to the uh, local country store. But when they learned to reproduce music the way they do now, 
People can listen to songs and music, thousands of different ones all day long. And it's almost like we are saturated with information. So to compensate for that, I think we need to study like we've never studied. That's what I'm saying. You've got to add more salad now because there's too much dressing. And so, you know, as uh, he was just sharing, when I drive in my car, just last night I picked up my son from a lesson. He said, Dad, how come every time I get in the car, he says, you've always got a sermon on. I said, well, if you're going to talk to me, I want to talk to you, son. So I turned it off. But uh, I'm always trying to listen to something uh, because I've got to feed my soul. Back years ago, you'd read a little bit and you'd find yourself meditating on it all day long because that was really the only input. But there's so much input right now that displaces the Bible in our lives. You have to compensate by reading a lot of the Bible, studying a lot, listen to Christian stations when you drive. They're not all Adventist stations, I know, but if you're reading your Bible, you'll have a filter in your mind where you'll know how to spit out the seeds and hang on to the melon, right? <laughs> and so, and by the way, I don't think it's a sin to listen to people other than Adventist preachers. There are some good, godly preachers out there, but you've got to have a filter because sometimes they preach doctrines of devils. And you've got to know how to discriminate between those things. But you need to feed your soul. Um, I use a, several Bible programs. I've probably got four or five on this computer right here. The neat thing about it is uh, I've also got a Bible dictionary. Any person, place, or thing in the Bible, you type it in, you want to know about it, and there it is. You see, for instance, I've got Jesus Christ typed in here. Anything in red, you want to know about the resurrection, click on that. How fast is that? Any cross-references for those things, you just click on it, it takes you back to the Bible where those references are. By the way, I'm showing you an old program. The new ones do this and much more. Every verse in the Bible here, you see, this is Hosea right now. Every single verse, you'll see a little dot by it. I'll click on verse 4. All these are cross-references for that one verse that will instantly take you to it. And so then if I say, well, that's not the one I'm looking for, I just go back and I'll click on any of these other cross-references here. It takes you to that, of course, a red-letter edition. I can put my own personal notes in this Bible. I'm not going to show them to you. But, uh, you know, I can type in my own notes, and so it'll click and take me back to my notes. So you've got a Bible dictionary here, and this is just one program. You've got a Bible atlas. It's really helpful when you um, are preaching on different places, and you're saying, well, Paul went from this town to that town. You don't know what in the world does that mean. And, or if you say, you know, Jesus went from here to there. Right now I've got a map of David's journeys. I'm preaching on David tomorrow at Central Church. By the way, friends, please forgive me. After the program, Brother Rich here and I are going right to the Watsonville Airport. We have to fly back to Lincoln, drive home, wake up early, preach Sabbath school and church. And so I hope you'll understand if I can't stay and linger tonight. I wanted to be here, but I can't stay to visit, okay? Um, anyway, so you just click on any place in the Bible. See at the bottom of the screen? It tells you about those towns. Not only that, if you click on the verses in the, in the places, it'll tell you where in the Bible they appear. I'm back in the Bible. That's great. I always get excited showing people this. You know what else is neat? Is, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, you look in the bottom right part of the screen here. Look at my things on the map. Do you see how the longitude and latitude will change depending on where you are? If you click on one town and say, how far was it? Let's click on Gath here. There's Gath. And I want to know how far is it from Gath 
See at the bottom of the screen, the longitude latitude changes, and it tells you the distance. It's when it says that, uh, what was his name? Samson carried the gates up to Hebron. You click and you say, how far did he carry those gates? He carried them 10 miles. Now you don't know that until you get a map out and it says he carried them from here to there and you go, wow. Or how far did Joseph and Mary go when they had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem and she's pregnant on a donkey? And so the maps are really helpful. You look at the journeys of Paul and uh, that's always good. You should have maps even in the back of your Bible. Let me close that and I'll show you something else real quick that helps me. Um, oh, let's, I hope this works. Um, this is just, this is part of the same program I'm showing you. It's called QuickVerse. And again, this is an old program. But uh, I've got a hundred Bible commentaries. And this is, I don't have a CD in my computer right now. All these Bible commentaries are on this one program here. It's a whole library. You see them? I've got Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've got the writings of Josephus. I've got Spurgeon. I've got MacArthur. Uh, all of these things. Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Uh, and I can click on any one of them. I can cut and paste into my sermon instantly. I type with two fingers. I really do. And so when I build my sermons, I don't type all the verses out. Here, I'll show you. Where did I put my Bible? Oh. When I preach, and some of you are Bible workers, and I learned this from John Lomacain, so I need to give him credit, or he might sue me for copyright infringement. But I format my sermons long-wise, landscape, two columns. Usually one page, both sides, are just, it's just an outline. I put double-sided tape inside my Bible you can get at an office. You can say, I've been doing this for years, it's pretty wrecked. That keeps it from falling out. But it's, the tape is not real strong, so it doesn't tear your Bible apart. You can get your notes out. But it's kind of like that 3M posted tape. But when I preach, people always wonder, how are you reading Genesis or Revelation in the front of your Bible? <laughs> but when you do a Bible study, I'll tell you really, this is practical. You spend a lot of time turning your pages, even if you know where the books are. I tell everybody in the congregation where to turn, but I'm not turning. I've got every verse I'm going to read printed out in advance. I color coat my sermons. Color, color printers are really cheap right now. You color coat it, and for me, my illustrations are one color. I put boxes around Spirit of Prophecy quotes. I put my topic headings in purple. So I find them for my mind quickly because they're color coded, and uh, I like things real simple. But uh, I'm, you know, periodically I'll open the Bible and read verses in the Bible. But a lot of times I save a lot of time because I've got all the verses right there. I just fold them over and put them in the front of my Bible. And uh, it's just a practical thing. So when I'm preparing a sermon, I use my Bible software. I highlight it. You all know what that means. Copy, paste into my notes. I've got all of Ellen White's writings here on my laptop. So you know how many books that takes? But it's all here. So uh, it, it doesn't take long at all for me to look those things up. But all you've got to do is, of course, you find the verse you want. You go like that. You say right-click. Go to your Word document, paste, it's in there. Move it around, drag it where you want it, you put things in order. That used to take me so long to do with a pencil. Someday I'm going to sell on eBay my notebook of handwritten sermons. 
Uh, but I've got all those, and it just took me forever, and I'd have to tear them up and rewrite them or try and draw lines and arrows. But don't say this first, say this first. It is so much faster now using this technology. Oh, uh, what else? Should, oh, hey, let me see if that's still open. I'll show you something neat. I've even got a program in here. I don't know how to pronounce Bible words. I've got a program in here that tells you. Uh, let me see here. Hang on a second. I got the writings of Josephus. Uh, my mouse isn't here, so I'm struggling. Oh, here it is. Unger's New Talking Bible Dictionary. Every word in the Bible, it says it for you. Uh, you know what fable is. Let me find a hard one. There you go. I got to turn on my microphone here. Let me see that. Yeah, well, this is. You hear that? Have you ever come across a word in the Bible you don't know how to say it? This one, this is one book out of 70 books in this one program that will say every word in the Bible. You know how smart that makes me sound when I'm preaching? <laughs> if I'm reading a verse, I said, wow, I don't know how in the world to say that. I will press it and press it and press it, and Karen will hear me in the office saying, A or hashtari, A or hashtari. <laughs> and it raises your perceived IQ when you're <laughs> preaching. If you don't have to say this place and that guy, if you can uh, say them all. So that's just one of the thousands of, uh, of, of programs that are available. And, well, I'm not going to linger on that one, but that just gives you an idea. Um, of course, you've got the dictionary. What shall I more say? I saw on the Army website you've got this free software. I use it all the time. It's eSword, and it's just e-sword.net, and I've downloaded about everything in English they have. And it's nice if you can make a donation to them because they do this for free. I did. Uh, I think that it's uh, good to support folks that are doing that. Neat thing is every verse in the Bible you click on, on the right here you've got the commentaries of some of the greatest Bible commentators. They're all public domain because they're all dead. They're, they're free. <laughs> and, and so, uh, well, I mean, you know, it's like Wesley's notes, Adam Clark. This was John Wesley's, uh, basically his right-hand man. Spoke seven languages. Brilliant, brilliant guy. John Gill, the best Baptist theologian. And you know what else you'll find? These guys believed an awful lot like Adventists more than their posterity. They believed the beast the way we do, most of these Protestants. Yeah, they believed in keeping the law, obeying the commandments, not, because, not to be saved, but because you are saved. They believed in keeping the Sabbath. Uh, you, you read what Spurgeon says about the Sabbath. He had the day wrong, but he talks about keeping the, the Sabbath. And so, you know, like I said, you've got to spit out a few seeds, but there's some great knowledge. It, by the way, Matthew Henry's commentary, which is here free, it's in Ellen White's library. She read Matthew Henry's commentary. And so just incredible resources here. And then at the bottom of the screen, this is again all free online, esword.net, is uh, all these dictionaries. That, uh, so it'll tell you about the word history. Whenever I preach on a word, I want to get it not only in the dictionary, if there's a name in the Bible, what does that name mean? They always mean something. So I always look those up. 
And so here you've got 10 different Bible translations. You can just see them up at the top. Here's the King James Version. Every single word in Hebrew or Greek is there. You just go like this and look, it pops it up. Every word. Tells you where it is in Strong's. And at the bottom of the screen you'll have Strong's. You can copy it in. So this is what we use when we do the radio program. They say, yeah, but in the Hebrew it doesn't say that. I say, oh yeah, it does. I'm looking at it right here. And they think, how do you find that so fast? <laughs> and it's because every word, when you go to the verse, I can read it uh, in the Hebrew and the Greek right there. So you get Smith's Bible Dictionary here. Knaves topical if you want to prepare sermons or Bible studies. But wait, there's more. <laughs> if you order now. You've got, uh, I told you about all of Ellen White's writings. Here, most of you know this. Not only are all of Ellen White's writings here, but you've got all the writings of the pioneers. I just don't remember how to open it. Uh, biography. Here, where are we? Oh, here are the historical works. Oh, add words of the pioneers. Look at this. All of Ellen White's writings and all of the writings of, like, Andrews, uh, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not using this new one very often. No, that's not what I want. Where are they? Oh, here they are. Pioneer authors. Here you've got all the writings of Jane Andrews. He also spoke seven languages. It'll show you a picture of him if you want to take it and put it into uh, a PowerPoint program. Joseph Bates, William Miller, James White. This is all one CD. I don't have the CD in my computer. It's all on the hard drive. Do you know how heavy my computer would be if it was a book? <laughs> I'm serious. The book would be bigger than this room. Think about that. I'm serious. All the books that are in here now, and I haven't shown you a fraction of what's there. So, and you know now with the internet, more and more people aren't even putting it all on their computer because they can get internet everywhere. You can access all of Ellen White's writings on the internet, uh, these Eastward books, the Bible, Gateway. And so I guess what I'm saying is, um, in your personal study, it's great to use all of these resources as far as if you want to study different versions, if you want to know what the Greek meant, if you want to do a word study on the Bible. There's just some incredible resources that will help you. My wife always likes to hold the book in her hands. And so we still have a lot of the books in our house. And she says, when I read, I like to sit on the bed with a book in my hands. But she also studies on the computer, too. So I just wanted to share with you what I do. Uh, maybe I'll take a moment or two and see if you have any questions. And then we'll go to the presentation for tonight. Any questions on, you know, maybe Bible software or um, got a question back here? Speak up and I'll repeat it. What was the first one that you used? First program? Yeah. First program was called QuickVerse. It was actually QuickVerse version 4, the Rainbow Edition. It's about 10 years old, but I think that it's still available on like eBay or something. But they, they're at QuickVerse 10 now. I just, I like the old one. I still haven't figured out how to use the 10-year-old one, everything that's in it. Really, I learned something new about the program last week, and I've had it for 10 years. Well, you can buy the CD. Uh, the question is, do you need to get the CD? You can also study most of her writings at the E.G. White website. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah so it's, most of it's on the Internet. I like having it. It's much faster to do it if it's on your hard drive. It's like that. If you've got a slow connection, you often have to wait. It's ten times faster if you have it on your hard drive. It's how much? 
Now it's nineteen dollars. They're having. Can you imagine that? It used to be a hundred. Uh, I, the programs I showed you very quickly are, and we got a microphone here. Uh, of course, I showed you QuickVerse. There's a great program. I know the guy who invented Logos. It's one of the most thorough Bible software. Uh, he was at our church, and it's actually it's for the real scholars, but it does everything. Logos is a great program. Um, there's a, a PC Bible. There's all different levels of Bible software. You saw me point out um, eSword really has all the fundamentals most of us would need. If the, all the old commentators are free, if you want to buy some of the new commentators that are still uh, copyright, you have to pay for those. The public domain things are all free. Uh, all the Bibles are free too, excuse me. A lot of versions available. Different languages available on eSort. Spanish, Arabic, Greek, you name it. They've got just about everything there. Hebrew, Greek, that's eSort, that's free. Yeah, it's, it's one of the little keys that you in, install. You just click, I want the King James Hebrew Greek. Bible concordances are free on eSword. Now, so if you're asking about the Seventh-day Adventist commentary, that's still something unique you buy at the ABC. It's a separate purchase. There is a, there is software for the Adventist commentary you can buy. Uh, any other questions specifically about using technology to study? I got the Bible on my phone. Uh, we got someone here, Tim, who's, I think, helping with production. Uh, is it too early for me to say that we've just developed all 27, well, Tim did, but I'm saying we, uh, all 27 Amazing Facts study guides that will be on the iPhone as an iPhone app now. So isn't that neat? And so in about a week or so, we're hoping, in a couple weeks, we're hoping that, that you'll be able to get that. Uh, we just, it's going through the approval process of Macintosh or Apple. That means anyone can carry all of our doctrines and the proof texts on their phone to give a Bible study or to just study for themselves. But soon, so much of this is going to be not just on laptops and desktops, it's going to be on phones. And so it's just nice to know about these things that will be at our fingertips. But don't forget, you can't get lazy and just be depending on your computer. You still have to store it in your mind because they might take away your phone someday and your computer and your Bible. And it's not going to say, thy word I've hidden on my hard drive that I might not sin against thee. <laughs> so we, we still need to be memorizing scripture. Any other, we have another question? Do you think the, the, the old commentaries, the Seventh-day Adventist one, are up to date enough? Or? Uh, now this is my personal opinion. I have the Seventh-day Adventist commentary, but I found that our commentators often we're standing on the shoulders of the ones I just showed you. They're often reading Matthew Henry and John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown and Adam Clark, and I can see in their answers they're already reading the ancient commentators. There's some places where our, our commentaries are really valuable when you're getting to the sanctuary and some of our peculiar doctrines. But when you're going through the history of David and Joseph and just some of the general Bible study, you're not going to find a lot of difference between the Adventist commentary and some of the great Bible commentators that I mentioned. Um, any other? Did I see there's another hand? Hi, Doug. Um, I just uh, studied the Da Vinci Code, and, um, uh, and, then, I, and then I studied um, uh, 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 Persia, and um, I see, like in this magazine here, they have something called the Genesis Code, and I, I love all this stuff. 
but I just went into my local Hollywood video and I was just checking out some video games and I was just flabbergasted when I saw this video game. It said um, Prince of Persia and it just blew me away and I was like, wow, is this, and I, after just reading my Bible and learning about all this stuff, I'm like, is this all up for grabs? You know, anybody can go over there and take over, you know, but I wanted to know what you think about that Prince of Persia. Well, I don't have it, so I can't comment on it specifically, but uh, I would, I'd avoid that. Uh, I, I, I want to know what they mean, you know, I don't know what they mean. Uh, it's probably a video game uh, or a movie, I don't know. It's a killing game, they tell me. So, yeah, stay out of the video store. You'd be better off. <laughs> That's the best thing. All right, any more questions on Bible study, studying the Bible on your... Well, I just wanted to make a comment that anything that medicates the mind, <laughs> I think that should be it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tell you what, then. I'm going to turn this off and, and uh, well, the, well the, map, the program I had with the map is all one program. QuickVerse 4 Deluxe has got the library that you saw. It's got the maps. It's got the dictionary. It's got, oh, I didn't even show you. But wait, there's more. Uh, did I shut it already? I think I did. The, um, let me just see if I've got it. It's also got 32,000 Bible illustrations. It's called Bible Illustrator. See this up here? See the bottom of the screen? 31,000. And it goes, works with the Bible program. You pick any subject. You scroll down through these subjects. If you're teaching or preaching and you need some good illustrations, like your Bible illustration, look at that. You thought I dreamed all these things up. You just click like this. All these are different illustrations. And the neat thing is, see that verse down here? That'll open up the Bible where that illustration matches. Or you can click on a verse in the Bible and say, is there an illustration on this verse? It'll take you to illustrations related to that Bible verse. That's also part of the same program. So that's all quick verse four. But like I said, that's an old program. They got much better stuff out there. Well, I don't know. That was still a pretty, it's like a Volkswagen. It was a good program. <laughs> you know, some things you just can't improve on. But... Uh, Anyway, I don't want to take all our time with this, but this has just been a blessing. My wife was virtually a widow for a few years as I learned to use a computer. I kept crashing my Windows 3.1 and uh, while uh, I was learning how to use it. And I still can't type. I still use two fingers to type. But um, anyway, it's embarrassing when I'm on an airplane and some... Uh, executive opens his laptop next to me and you know he's uh, going <laughs> and it's a long flight and eventually I, I hope they go to sleep and they don't see me I have to open my laptop and uh, they find out that I type with two fingers <laughs> all right you know my favorite theme, and in, in the AFCO classes that we teach at Amazing Facts, my favorite theme is to talk about Jesus in all of the Bible. And uh, maybe as a springboard for that, I'll have you turn in your Bibles, and someone may have already taken you here before, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, it's a story of the um, disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is great to see everybody here. We ought to do this every year, huh? Yeah. Just focus on Bible study. I think that's wonderful. If it wasn't for the Bible, I sure wouldn't be here right now. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were, of course, devastated. Two of them walking down to Emmaus that day were discouraged, and they talked about all that was discouraging them. Jesus drew near, but they did not recognize Jesus by his design. It wasn't just that he had a hood on or that he had disguised himself. Somehow their eyes were whole, so they didn't recognize him because they would be so excited they wouldn't hear him. And the main thing that he wanted them to hear was that he was the Messiah from the scriptures. And so as they're walking down the road and they're discouraged, Christ says in verse 17, Luke 24, what kind of conversation is this that you have one with another as you walk and are sad? Our, sad should not, our walk should not be a sad one. By the way, there's a connection there that they did not know him and they were sad. Eternal life comes from knowing him. You can't obey him if you don't love him. You won't love him if you don't know him. You won't know him unless you let him speak to you and you speak to him. You speak to him through prayer. He speaks to you through the word. The best way to follow the Lord is you've got to love him. can't obey him unless you know him and you love him. That won't happen unless you spend time letting him talk to you every day. If you're married, you know that it's not just being with somebody physically that means you have a meaningful relationship. It's not always quality time. Quality time is where you actually communicate. I've been often reminded of that. I'll say, buddy, I was with you all day. She said, yeah, but we didn't really talk. And so God wants quality time with us. That means where we're communicating, we're praying, and he speaks to us through his word. And then you go to verse 25. And he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Please notice, all the prophets have spoken, all the scriptures, he expounded unto them, in all the prophets. All, all, all. God wants us to believe all the Bible. Now when Jesus said this, how much New Testament was written? So when he's expounding about himself, what is he using? And when, when Christ says, search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they that testify of me, John chapter 5, what scriptures is he talking about? Principally the Old Testament. It's kind of sad because you go to some churches now and talking about typically non-Adventist churches, they'll have a Bible for the people, but it's just the New Testament. And yet uh, Jesus proved he was the Messiah from the Old Testament. When Paul went around through the churches of Asia and all the apostles, how did they convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah? By pointing to the fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. Not only the fulfilled prophecies, all through the Old Testament, the stories in the Bible reflect Jesus. Now, I'll tell you something um, interesting happened to me this week. You'll be the first to hear this story. Um, my father died, I don't even know, it's five, six years ago now. And just about a week ago, uh, about a week and a half ago, I got a big box, one big box from sister-in-law in Florida, still rooting through his stuff after all these years. He had, you know, 
83 years of stuff. And she said, Doug, these are things that I thought you would probably want as opposed to my kids, the grandkids. I didn't want to open it because uh, it's kind of painful, you know. Sat on the mantle for a week and Karen, I could see she finally opened it. She was waiting for me to open it, but I could, and then I noticed it had been opened. She wanted to look inside, which is fine. And so then I finally, one day when no one was home, I got it out and I sort of started digging through it. And he had, you know, some memorabilia and some pictures in there and some junk. My dad saved like his registration from a car 50 years ago. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, yeah, this is interesting, but will I ever really need this? <laughs> and so, you know, you have to, it's kind of painful. You got to throw stuff out. You know, you really don't want to pass on to your kids. And so, uh, and then I separated two piles, stuff I wanted to keep, stuff that was really just junk. They didn't know what to do with took this big box of junk, threw it out, and didn't think about it much against, uh, put some other stuff of my father's in uh, the photo albums. Monday, we take out the garbage. Garbage cans get taken out, waiting for the trucks to pick them up. I got the strangest impression. I, I went outside. I was going to say, Karen, let's go for a walk. I went outside to see if it was cool enough yet. I saw the garbage cans, and a voice said, go look in the garbage can. And I thought, I don't do that anymore. I got the victory years ago. <laughs> I, I used to do dumpster diving, but I haven't done that in a long time. And really, I, I got this strong impression to go look in a garbage can. And I went and I lifted up the garbage can, and I, I picked up garbage, and I looked to see the stuff I'd thrown out. That was my dad's. And I just felt like I was being impressed to pick up this folder that I'd thrown out. I'd already been through it. I picked it up and I looked and I said, wait a second, I didn't see this, I didn't see that. There was a whole file of my father's pictures, love letters from my mother, after he had been married to someone else for years, no less. Uh, that was kind of weird. And, uh, and pictures from his friends, he had a picture of him, anyone know who Kurt Kikorian is? Owns the MGM Grand, part of Chrysler. I don't know if that's good anymore. But um, he, he, was in, he used to be in business with Kurt. And here's a letter with him and Kurt Kikori and pictures of them and their wives together. And just all this stuff I'd never seen before. Pictures of my dad when he was a young and his first wife, baby, died in a plane crash. And all this really intimate stuff. I'd thrown it out by accident. And I don't know why I just had not even looked in this file. And I started learning all kinds of things about my father after he's gone. Now, I don't know about you, but some of you may have a parent or somebody and you felt like, you know, I never really got to know him as well as I wanted to know him. But even after they're gone, then you'll meet people they used to work with. Or you'll meet friends or family and they'll give you, they'll say, oh, I can tell you stuff about your dad. And that's happened in the last six years since he died. I feel like I know him better now and it wasn't this kind of a relationship. It was like I'm knowing him through other people who knew him. And you know, when I read the Old Testament, I get to know Jesus through Moses. I get to know Jesus through David. I get to know Jesus through Joseph, through Gideon, through Samuel. And as Paul said, what shall I more say? Everywhere I look in the Old Testament, I'm seeing Jesus. And if you were to ask me, I couldn't tell you whether I've learned more about Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or from the Old Testament. 
Because when Christ wanted to prove that he was the Christ, he turned to the Old Testament. And it's almost like somebody that is wearing a, a gar garment with really big mirror-like sequins on them. And no matter where they turn, you see varying reflections. Wherever I turn the Old Testament, I see images of Jesus. And I now read the Bible that way. By the way, and I think there's a handout. I don't know if you get them afterward or if you've gotten them already. But there's a handout that uh, I sent on ahead that talks about Christ being in all the Bible. And uh, I'd encourage you to read that. This is how I read the Bible, and I find it's very encouraging. It, uh, it's really been a blessing for me. Here it is, as a matter of fact. I've got it in my... Oh, no, I don't have it in my... Yeah, I do. I've got something else in my hands. For instance, in Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the lamb for sinners slain. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the star of Jacob, so forth. And you go through the 66 books of the Bible and you're going to find that Jesus is being revealed to you a facet of his character through one of these dimensions. Now, chances are somebody here is going to take offense at what I'm about to say, but I feel impressed to say it. There's a growing group out there that is hung up on the name of Jesus. And they're even reading Bibles where the Bible is specifically rewritten so that you must say Jesus' name in the original tongue. Yahweh or Yeshua, depending on whether you're in the Old or New Testament. I respectfully disagree with that position. I don't find anywhere in the Bible where God says we must address him in Hebrew or Greek or any other language. He always expects us to address him in our language. I also find in the Bible that Jesus has many names. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Alpha, the Omega, the Door, the Bread, the Vine, the Living Water. I mean, it goes on and on. And so it becomes very narrow. It's the antithesis of what God is saying in the Bible that we should just look through a pinhole to see who he is. Christ is giving us uh, just a, like a diamond with all these facets to get these pictures of who he is. If anybody's got a complex personality, it's God. He is so broad. He's so awesome. He's so great. And the Bible just continues to expand deeper and deeper who he is. And he reveals who he is through all these different names. And so when someone comes to you and says, you're saying his name wrong, and it's a sacred name, and you're only supposed to utter it a certain way, that's almost spiritualism. It's like you say a spell, but if you don't say the magic word a certain way, then your prayer won't be answered. And you know, Jehovah Witnesses are sort of hung up on that. They won't pray with you because they say, well, you may not say his name right. Come on, our God is bigger than that. Amen. And so I see Christ revealed in such incredible detail all through the Bible. Now, when Jesus is walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he's opening to them the scriptures, going from Moses to Malachi and the Psalms. It says later in the same chapter, from the law and the Psalms and the prophets. I've often thought, how much would you pay for an audio tape of Jesus proving that he was Jesus? 
for two hours after the resurrection, going all the way through the then existent scriptures. How much would that recording be worth? And so I've spent a lot of my life saying, I wonder what he said. And you know, I've, it's been a very rich study for me right now at Central Church. I'm going through a series where I'm talking about Christ and all the Bible. And I'm talking about various Bible heroes and such as um, Moses and Joseph and David. Um, for instance, let me take one. I'm looking at the clock and I think I'm only going to have time for one. One of the greatest examples in the Bible of Christ, and let me back up and tell you why I'm saying what I'm saying. We're encouraged to study the Bible the way Jesus studied the Bible. We should study the Bible and teach the Bible the way the apostles did. That would avoid us getting into a lot of trouble with some of the offshoot interpretations that we run into. Paul read the Old Testament and he saw Christ everywhere. Paul talked about the Exodus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. said they were baptized in the Red Sea. They were baptized in the pillar of fire. They were baptized in Moses, he said, as we are baptized in Christ. And he compares the whole Exodus experience to salvation. Pharaoh is the antithesis, or rather he is a type of Satan. Moses is a type of Christ. One of the last prophecies of Moses said in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God is going to raise up a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you will hear. Doesn't tell his name. Deuteronomy, Moses preaches it, then he dies. Before he dies, he says, don't despair. There's another prophet coming like me. It's interesting, the follower of Moses was named Jesus. Joshua, in Greek, is Jesus. But there was another Joshua that was the prophet who came like Moses. Matter of fact, you can read where, uh, when John the Baptist started preaching. All the Jews were looking for this prophet that Moses had foretold would come someday, a great deliverer that would save the people, that would be like Moses. When John the Baptist starts preaching, they come to him and they say, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And when they said the prophet, they're thinking about the prophet Moses referred to. Again, in verse 25, John chapter 1, they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? So we don't find a name connected with it because Moses never gave a name. He didn't say someone will come in my spirit and power. He just said there will be a prophet. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter's preaching, he said, for, and this is in verse 22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him you will hear. Peter goes on to say, that's Jesus. Jesus was like Moses. Matter of fact, one more thing. If you read in verse 24 of Acts 3, Peter goes on to say, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, likewise foretold these days. Do you catch that? Peter said, All the prophets foretold what had just happened with Christ's coming these days, Jesus. So I read my Bible 
looking for the allusions and the references and the metaphors and the types and the shadows and echoes of Jesus in every book of the Bible. And you can find it. You can find it in the genealogies, in the names. There's meaning to those names, and they often represent Jesus. I went through the 144,000 one time. The way they appear there in Revelation chapter 7, it's the only place in the Bible they appear in that list. It tells the whole story of salvation and the way the names are organized. And so it's, it's just a wonderful study, looking for Jesus everywhere. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's about to die. They're going to stone him. You know what he tells the Sanhedrin? This is, speaking of Jesus, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. He said Jesus was the fulfillment of Moses. Of course, Paul says we're baptized in Moses. Now let's look at some of the parallels of Jesus. I'm going to go through them quickly if I can. Some of the parallels of Jesus and Moses that you find, just to give you an overview. And uh, you know what? I'll leave my notes with whoever is large and in charge here. I got them on my computer. And if anyone wants a copy, maybe they can make copies of this. I did not send this ahead, but I'll be happy to leave this here with you. And I just did this study last week, so it's pretty fresh. First of all, both Moses and Jesus survived baby genocide. There was a law, a government law, to exterminate all the baby Hebrews in a certain territory. For one, it was Goshen. For the other, Bethlehem. And of course, you know, Exodus 1, throw all the baby boys in the river. Matthew chapter 2, kill all the baby boys two years old and under. Both Moses and Jesus were born of slaves, but were not slaves. All of us are born slaves to sin. We're all born, every man has sinned except Jesus. Though Jesus had human parents, he never sinned. Though Moses had slave parents, he never served as a slave. Both Moses and Jesus were saved by going to Egypt. As a baby, Jesus was taken by his parents into Egypt. As a baby, Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's household and that was the means of saving him. Another interesting parallel. Saved through Egypt. It's interesting, both with Moses in Exodus 2.10 and with Jesus in Luke 2.40, it says, and the child grew. You don't find that phrase word for word that many times in the Bible, and the child grew. Both Moses and Jesus turned their backs on palatial wealth to save their people. You read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Moses knew about Christ, didn't he? He was valuing suffering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked for the reward. Did Christ turn his back on the palace of heaven and come to this world? Because he looked to the reward of saving you? that exceeding great joy? Did the devil offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world and he turned his back on them? Why? For the reward, the joy of seeing you and I saved. They were willing to suffer. Did Moses and Jesus both fast for 40 days and 40 nights? 
Did both Moses and Jesus hear the audible voice of God on a mountaintop? Did both Moses and Jesus hear the audible voice of God in a valley with other people listening? At the baptism of Jesus, which is obviously a valley, there's a river. And Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai when God spoke the Ten Commandments. How often does anyone audibly hear the voice of God? A whole nation. But it happened to Jesus and Moses both. Both Moses and Jesus had problems with faith shining. <laughs> Moses was on the mountain talking to God and his face shone so that he had to veil his face so the people could even look at him. Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus and God spoke to him and his glory shone through Christ so they had to cower. They couldn't even look at him because of the glory of God. Christ was God veiled in humanity. Just as Moses veiled his face so the people could see him, Christ was a veil of God. You remember when uh, Judas brought the mob and they arrested Jesus? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Christ said, I am he. And they all fell back. I've got a hunting light. It's like 15 million lumens. Rich knows what I'm talking about. It's this uh, spotting light. I don't hunt, but when I go camping, it's really fun. You wait until someone's like, you know, just falling asleep in their tent, and you shout, and you shine it in their face. <laughs> now, I'd never do that. <laughs> but I thought about it. This thing's really bright. Now, can you imagine when Jesus said, I am he, and then he flashed his divinity, and it says they fell back. Well, Moses veiled his face because he talked to God. Christ was the divinity of God veiled in humanity. And every now and then, that divinity shone through. You read that in the book Desire of Ages. Both Moses and Jesus sat down by a well and found a woman. You remember when uh, you can read there in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15? Now when Pharaoh heard these things, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and he dwelt in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now listen, this is interesting. He sat down by a well and he met seven daughters of Jethro, ended up marrying one of them. But when he first met them, he defended them from some shepherds that were uh, not letting them water their flocks. They then ran home, told their father, and he said, where is the man? Go back and get him. Where's your hospitality? They go back and they get him, and he comes and he joins them and lives with Jethro. Jesus sits down at the well. He reveals to a woman who has had five husbands. She's living with one she's not married to. That's six. None of them brought her peace or happiness. And then she, Jesus reveals he's the Messiah. Brings her joy. He's the seventh. She then leaves, tells everyone, I found the Messiah, comes back with the whole town, brings him back to their town. Sits down by a well. Both Moses and Jesus were judges. Remember Moses sat down to judge the people. Finally he delegated that judgment to other leaders. Twelve princes. Jesus is our judge. When he ascended he delegated that to the others. Second Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Both Moses and Jesus were good shepherds of their father's flock. Sacrificial shepherds. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. Remember, did Moses help through God's power perform a miracle to feed the people with bread? Did Jesus perform a miracle to feed the people with bread? 
And then in the context of that miracle, Jesus turns them back and points to Moses. He said, Moses didn't give you that bread that came down from heaven. I'm the one that really gave you that bread. And I am the true bread that came down from heaven. That all pointed to. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word. There's your Bible. And don't forget in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. What is that talking about? Just food or the Bible? How often should we be reading it? At least six days a week. The manna fell at least six days a week, right? By the way, if you're trying to live today on what you collected a month ago, it's going to breed worms and stink. You've got to have fresh bread every day. Unless it's Friday. But then you gather twice as much, right? Do your Sabbath school lesson. Some of you got that. It's also interesting that the manna is even a type of Christ. It came down quietly during the night. Jesus came quietly into our world. It was round, a symbol of perfection. It tasted sweet. The word of God is sweet, like honey in our mouths. It was white, in the Bible, a symbol of purity. That, those little manas, and you know what they called it? What is it? God's people said, what is it? And when Christ came, what did his people say? Who is this? They didn't know. Both Moses and Jesus shining on a mountain. Both came down the mountain to teach and to save. Exodus 19, verse 14. Moses went down from the mountain unto the people. Matthew 8, 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. By the way, when Moses came down the mountain... He had to deal with devils in the valley. You remember when he came down, shining on the mountain? They're making a golden calf. Devils in the valley. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did he encounter as soon as he came down the valley? A demon-possessed boy. The disciples couldn't cast the demon out. They went from the glory on the mountain to devils in the valley, both Moses and Jesus. Did they attempt to stone Moses? Exodus 17.4, Moses cried to the Lord and said, What shall I do? This people is ready to stone me. Numbers 14.10, And all the congregation bade stone them with stones, meaning Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. What about Jesus? John 8.59, They took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. John 10.31, the Jews again took up stones to stone him. He is that prophet like Moses. Did Moses have 70 elders of Israel? Exodus 24.9, then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. What about Jesus? After these things the Lord appointed, oh this is Luke 10 verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face. They both fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses had 12 princes of Israel and 12 tribes that he led. You can read about this in uh, Numbers 144. These are those that were numbered that Moses and Aaron numbered and the princes of Israel being 12. We've all heard of the 12 tribes. Do you remember the 12 princes of Israel? They were the leaders, the primary judges. Luke 6.13, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples 
and he chose 12. That's Jesus, who he named apostles. So not only did Moses have the 12 princes, there were 70 elders. Not only did Jesus have the 12 apostles, there were 70 disciples. And when they replaced Judas, they looked for one among the 70 who had followed him from the beginning, and who they picked? Matthias, right? They cast lots. He was probably one of the original 70. Now I think this is really beautiful. Both Moses and Jesus gave of their spirit to their followers. Numbers eleven seventeen. God said to Moses, I'll come down and I'll talk to thee there and I'll take of the spirit that is upon me and I'll put it upon them. What happened at Pentecost? Christ said, it's expedient for me to go away that I might send the comforter. Whose spirit is it that comes at, when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit? Spirit of Christ. Same way that that same spirit that uh, Moses was filled with filled uh, them as well. Both Moses and Jesus conquered the serpent. Have you ever thought about that? You know the story? Children of Israel complained about the manna. Do we ever do that? Manna, manna, manna. Same thing every day. Man, I mean, you know, salad bar, salad bar, salad bar. Don't they have anything else? And what happened? When they became ungrateful for the manna that was sustaining them, God withdrew his protection and a plague of serpents came and began to bite the people. And Moses was instructed to take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up, lift it up where everyone could see. Christ talking about that said in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even though so the Son of Man should be lifted up. What does that mean? A lot of people read that. I don't believe they know what it means. I think God sent me to a cave to understand what that means. When I lived up in the cave, I had a snake stick. Because when you kill a rattlesnake, and I killed rattlesnakes more frequently with my stick, you don't reach over after you bludgeon. Two weeks ago, park the airplane up in the Kovalo hangar, open the hangar, and there's a rattlesnake. I've got a broomstick in my hangar I use for keep picking up the black widows. I got black widows and rattlesnakes in my hangar. Anyone want to come? <laughs> and I got this, this broomstick. I used to have a broom, but I wore the broom out, cleaning all the spider webs off and killing the black widows. And so I killed this rattlesnake with a broomstick. Do you think I reached over and picked him up? Because sometimes, even though you think they're mortally wounded, and it looks like their head and jaw are disconnected, don't you reach out and pick them up because they got a reflex. They'll swing around and bite you if they can. You pick them up with a stick. And I carried it out back and tossed it to a safe place. Shepherds all had staffs. A pig, a dog can get bit by a rattlesnake or a venomous snake and maybe survive. Not a sheep. If you're a shepherd and you see a rattlesnake, you better thump it. And then you pick it up and you, if you see a snake being carried on a staff by a shepherd, it means he just killed a snake and he's taking it off to dispose of it, but it's still dangerous. So when they looked up at that snake on a pole, they all knew what that meant. They're a nation of shepherds. It meant a defeated serpent, but still dangerous. When Christ was crucified, he defeated the serpent. His doom is sealed. He said, it is finished. Satan's not going to suddenly turn the tide and win the battle. He's doomed. 
but he can still bite. He can bruise our heel, but we're supposed to crush his head through Christ. That's why Jesus said, you will tread on serpents. That's what it's all talking about. So, Christ defeated the serpent. Satan defeated, or Moses defeated the serpent also. You remember when God told Moses what was a sign that he was supposed to do? He said, put your, put your staff on the ground. What did it turn into? He was able to take it by the tail. And uh, I've seen people grab snakes by the, behind the head. Uh, by the way, don't try that. I got a friend that tried that. I got two friends that tried that, and they both got bit. So Christ, Moses, defeated the serpent. They delivered God's people from slavery. They're great deliverers. If they stuck with Moses, they made it out of Egypt. If we stick with Jesus, he will give us victory over sin. Both built the temple. Moses built the temple in the tabernacle. And Christ said, destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I'll raise it up. The only two witnesses they got to agree were the ones in Mark chapter 14 who said, we heard him say, destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I'll make one without hands. He spoke of his body. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple that Jesus built. He was a carpenter. He came to build the temple. You're the temple. Moses built the temple. And that temple crossed over into the promised land, didn't it? You are to cross over into the promised land from the wilderness. Both were meek. It doesn't say that about too many people in the Bible, but Jesus said, John chapter 11, Come unto me, I'll give you rest, for I am meek and lowly. And what is the outstanding characteristic of Moses? Numbers 1.12, Now the man Moses was very meek above all men which are upon the face of the earth. In the Old Testament, just before the people are delivered from slavery, Moses prays and ten plagues fall on Egypt, and then God's people come out of Egypt. Christ our Moses, just before he returns, there's going to be seven plagues, and he will take us out of this world into the promised land. Both Moses and Jesus were resurrected. Now you know, of course, Christ was resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Do you all know Moses was resurrected? Now some people take issue with this, but I think we can prove it. I can prove from the Bible that Moses died and he was resurrected. You can't prove he was raised three days later, but there is one semi-dependable writing that seems to support that. And I'll tell you about that in just a moment. First of all, Jude 1 verse 9, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. Why was Michael coming for the body of Moses? Obviously to resurrect him. Why? What was the great desire of Moses? That he was denied. He wanted to see the people cross. Well, he wanted to lead them. God let him see the promised land from afar, but he wanted to see the people cross over. So I think God raised him. Now, do we know that he's in heaven? He talked with Jesus face to face on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was not an apparition or a vision. You don't have three people all having the same dream at the same time, hearing the same voices. Peter, James, and John were there so they could give firsthand witness and say, no, it wasn't a dream. 
That's why Christ said, don't tell anybody about this until after I've risen from the dead. That's why Peter said, you know, we were with him on the holy mount, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. The word of God is even more sure than a vision. And so Moses and Elijah are alive now. So we know Moses died. We know he's resurrected because he's in heaven. There is a book that is no longer in existence, but it was quoted by the church father Origen, and it's called The Assumption or The Ascension of Moses. And it's an old Jewish tradition that when God came for Moses, when Michael the archangel came for Moses, he came the third day to raise him because the Jews, he did not want the Jews to find the place where he had been buried by the Lord and to make a shrine out of the place. Now, that really is something to think about. There's only one person in the history of the world that had their funeral conducted by God himself. That was Moses. You've got to be pretty special when God takes care of your funeral arrangements. It says the Lord buried him. Isn't that something? And probably my last point, will the, both Moses and Jesus were willing to lay down their lives that others might be saved, even if they might be lost. You know what Christ went through when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, thy will be done. Christ suffered the way the lost suffer facing the second death because he was going to his death bearing guilt the way the lost do. He took our punishment and our death. Our death is a guilty death. So Jesus was dying the kind of death the lost die up until that moment when he said it is finished into your hands I commend my spirit. Was Jesus willing to lay down his life to save us? What about Moses? Exodus 32, 32. That should be easy to remember. He's interceding for the people. Was Jesus our intercessor? Was Moses a mediator? Is Jesus our mediator? He said, if you will forgive their sin, Lord, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book that you have written. You know, like Paul, he had come to the place where he said, even if I'm not saved, what's most important to me, Lord, is your glory, your name, your people. And you know, my desire is, I think I'll have arrived as a Christian in my sanctification if I can ever get to the place like Moses or Paul. Paul said, I'm willing to be lost that Israel might be saved. So often we ask like Peter, most of us are in Peter's stage where we say, Lord, what's in it for us? We left everything to follow you, what will we get? And the Lord knows we're that way, and he says, oh, you're going to get a hundred times more in this life and eternal life in the world to come. But you've really grown when you love the Lord so much that you can say, Lord, I don't care if I get anything. If your name is glorified and your people are saved, that's what I want. No matter what's in it for me, even if I get nothing, if I'm lost, and your will is done, I'm happy. That seems so foreign to me. You know, the only way that we can think that way is if we have the mind of Christ. Yeah. Now, something occurred to me. How could God control history so much that these heroes like Moses and Joseph and David and Gideon and Samuel and Elijah, you look at their lives and you see these types of, very prominent types of, of Jesus all represented. 
When Moses surrendered himself to the Lord, God orchestrated his life so it mirrored his own life. If you and I surrender ourselves to the Lord, you become like what you look at. Our lives begin to represent and mirror the life of Jesus. And it's like that scripture where Paul says that uh, we with open face beholding are transformed from glory to glory. It's like our souls are photographic plates. You are all right now the sum total of what you have taken into your minds and your eyes and your ears over the course of your life. That's why you are who you are. That's why uh, most of you speak English. That's why you like the food you like. It's because somebody fed you that food. Nobody all of a sudden says, you know, I really crave rice. Well, so you like rice? Well, I've never had it before, but I'm craving it. <laughs> Most people develop an appetite for what they eat. You become like what you look at. And the wonderful thing is you can change your appetites and you can change your character by choosing what you eat, both spiritually and physically. I didn't mean to drift off into the health message, but I was at Weimar yesterday, so I'd... <laughs> See, you're changed by beholding. So the more time we spend beholding Christ, our lives begin to model the life of Christ. And it's like it says there in Hebrews, what shall I more say for time would fail me? I wish I could have heard Jesus' sermon. I bet you he talked about David. You know, when David was uh, writing Psalms 22, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you see Jesus on the cross and he re repeats the first verse of the 22nd Psalm. Why did he do that? Because he's hoping you'd open your Bible and read the rest of the Psalm where it says, they gambled for my clothing, they pierced my hands and feet. How strange is that? That never happened to David. Or you read in the Bible where David is weeping on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem. And then you see Jesus weeping on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem. And you see that uh, all through the lives, Joseph. I'm sure Jesus talked about Joseph. How did Joseph's brothers cover their sin of betraying their own brother? They presented to their father a blood-stained robe. How is it? Well, the only thing that Christ left behind was a blood-stained robe. And that's what we offer to the father to cover our sin. All these things are written. And by the way, when David was betrayed by his best friend, Ahithophel, when it backfired, Ahithophel went out and hung himself. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. And he realized it didn't work out the way he planned. He thought Christ was going to work a miracle and save himself. He then went out and hung himself. All through these characters in the Bible, I keep seeing Jesus. You know what that does for me? It helps me realize that People aren't just looking at the Bible the way some folks may look at the Koran or the Bhagavad or some other professed holy book and forcing into it that it may be sacred. For me, you cannot escape the supernatural nature of the Bible that God has had a sovereign hand over all history from Genesis to the present day that has preserved this book because it's all telling about Jesus. So, what is a Christian? Follower of Christ. If you would be like Jesus, you got to look at him. The best way to look at Christ is in his word. And so I commend unto you this book, and I'd encourage you to read it as much as you can. Listen to it. You can read it hard copy. Read it on your computer. Listen to CDs in your car. 
and uh, on your phone, doesn't matter. Meditate in your quiet moments. Talk about him when you walk by the way, when you rise up, when you sit down. We should surround ourselves with the word of God because Jesus is the word. And as you read the word, you'll be transformed into his image. That's my prayer. How about you? Amen. Amen. Tell you what, if that's your desire, why don't we stand? And uh, just before we pray, I also want to remind, I will leave these notes up here for whoever will make copies. And uh, you're welcome to do that. Loving Father, as we pray for your continued benediction on this gathering, we thank you, Lord, for the sacred hours of the Sabbath. We thank you, Lord, for the sacred nature of this blessed book. And, oh, Lord, if we could only know the ocean of blood that has flowed, that we might have these words preserved for us. Help us to appreciate how awesome it is that we have freedom to touch and to handle the word of life. I pray, Lord, that, that uh, you'll help us also to fortify our minds with these truths. Through the Holy Spirit, we pray that you will engrave these things in our hearts and minds and then help us to recall them with the power of the Spirit as we need them for our own victory and also as we need them to share uh, the principles of truth with others. Please continue to bless this convocation with your presence. We know you're here now because we've gathered in your name. And I pray we can just gather strength from one another as iron sharpens iron. Thank you again for your blessings. We pray a revival will continue to grow as a result of what's happening here. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.